introduced us to a new uh, emphasis called Mission 1-8, uh, which is an undertaking of the church based on Acts 1-8, which says that uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And he has set a vision for the church to reach our city, our Jerusalem, to reach Judea, our state, to go beyond our state to the other states, and then share the gospel around the world. And to accomplish this, he's asked the church, that's us, to support that, Tommy, yeah, well, they don't need it for right now, yeah. to support that um, uh, mission with our tithes and our offerings. And if you were in church today, you know that the goal is to raise $45 million in the next two years to uh, support that. Now, if you're old enough, you remember Dr. Criswell. And every October, we'd have a stewardship event. And uh, that would set the budget for the next year. Well, this is sort of a setting a two-year budget. And uh, to help work through this challenge that he has provided us, the church has provided us with this workbook. There are four lessons in that workbook. And what we're asking you to do is, when you go home today, just go through a lesson per week. The lesson this week is on the heart. The a heart attitude toward giving, that God loves a cheerful giver. We'd like you to read the scriptures. There's several scriptures there. Read the scriptures. Discuss the lesson with your family. And uh, just meditate on what God wants you to do. Okay? And uh, you, many of you who have uh, supported the church over the years, God's blessed you beyond anything that you can imagine. I know if I would ask Drake Patterson when he was 25 years old, if he thought he'd be blessed the way he is today, he would have never considered that. And I would think that most of us are in that same situation. And if we give to God, he blesses us. So use this as a daily devotion. Okay? So let me pray for this mission 1-8 and uh, ask God to bless it. And then we're going to go into the Gospel of John. Father, we ask now that you show each one of us uh, how we should be a part of the mission 1-8 and how we should uh, give to this this two-year budget. Uh, help us to use the workbook as a reminder, as a refresher of what it means to be a committed follower of Jesus Christ. We ask, Lord, that your will be done in each one of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, and we are in chapter 3 today. And we're going to begin at John 3.16. We just happened to fall into uh, on that verse today. It's a very famous verse, probably one verse that everybody in the class knows. It's John 3.16. I remember when I was in seminary, I was in Washington, D.C., and I heard that Billy Graham was going to be speaking at... Uh, was in the area and he was speaking in a big Baptist church. I think it was First Baptist Church of the city of Washington. And he was a friend of that pastor. That pastor invited him to come and speak to his congregation. It was not open to the public. But word got out that Billy Graham was in town. Somehow. They were supposed to keep their mouths zipped, their lips zipped. 
Somehow the word trickled out and it ended up at the seminary that Billy Graham was in town. It was a closed meeting and a couple friends and I said, well, let's see if we can go and get to the meeting. Well, we get to the church and uh, the doors are locked, but there's about a thousand people on the steps trying to get in. And of course, I wiggled my way up to the front. And uh, they decided that they just couldn't turn all those people away. And so they said, well, we'll have a second meeting and Billy Graham will speak to you for a few minutes. So once they emptied the church out of all their members, they opened the doors and I got in there and Billy Graham just off the top of his head thanked us for being there and he was very humble and he said, I want to speak on John 3.16. And he quoted John 3.16 he says, for God, and then he just extemporaneously said, now who is God? And then he went through, God loved, and so on and so forth. That was the first time I'd heard him in person. He was at the height of his ministry, and I said, I want to be the next Billy Graham. Now, you're going to see why that's important in a moment when we look through this passage. But first, before going through this passage, I want to make a clarification. Last week, I said that John 3.13 was not spoken by Jesus, but was a comment... Uh, interjected by the gospel writer John and uh, someone was confused because they said surely Jesus spoke it because the words in my Bible are in red and the red words mean that Jesus spoke that isn't that correct and the answer is not necessarily the red words are added by the publisher as a feature to sell Bibles so they can put the words of Christ in red and then they guess which words Jesus spoke, and they put them in red. But this is not a case of Jesus speaking. Okay? And every Bible scholar would know that. Okay? And I'm going to show you how you can know that. Okay? If you read verse 13, it's coming from the lips of Jesus, it doesn't make sense. So let's read it and see. Okay? <clears throat> see if you think Jesus could have said this. Here's the verse. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man, who is where? Well, that Son of Man wasn't in heaven. He was talking to Nicodemus. He was on earth. So, it doesn't make sense if Jesus said it. He would say the Son of Man who's in Jerusalem talking to Nicodemus, right? But if it was written by John the Gospel writer in 95 AD, where would Jesus be in 95 AD? He'd have been in heaven. So just because words are in red, don't think that means that Jesus spoke these. Uh, now, Jesus does speak the next word. As Moses, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's in the future, isn't it? See? And then verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's, that's Jesus. But when you come to verse 16, guess what? we got John speaking again. See, don't you wish those words weren't in red? It's a confusion. Okay? Now watch John 3.16, and you tell me why these are not Jesus' words, why they have to be the Gospel writer John's words. Okay? And this is where we're picking up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Okay? Now, I emphasize two words. I emphasize two verbs. What's the tense of those verbs? Past tense. See, John's reflecting back on something that happened. If Jesus was talking about being lifted up as a serpent in the wilderness on the cross, 
He would have said, for God so loved the world that he's going to give his son on the cross. But what does it say? He gave his son. You see that? He loved and he gave. So that's past tense. So that's John speaking. I believe all the rest of the words in from verses 16 to 30 or to 21 are John speaking. In fact, I'll say all the words all the way through the end of the chapter. So let's look at this verse. Okay? So if you don't agree with me on that, that's fine. But I just wanted to show you why I'm thinking the way I am. Okay, first of all, I want you to notice the reason for Jesus' death in verse 16. Look what it says. For. You see that? For. This gives us the reason for Jesus' death. Look at the motive. For God loved. That's the motive for Jesus' death. It's God's love. God's love. Okay? Look at how he loved. God so loved. It speaks of him loving intensely. That's an adverb. Notice that. His degree of his love, if you want to put it that way. For God so loved. Now look at the object of his love. God so loved what? The world. Now that's not just planet earth, is it? Or did he love people? Whosoever believes in him, is that people or is that planet earth? The earth can't believe, can it? No, it's people. The word world refers to all the people. For God loved all people. We're the object of his love. Look at the demonstration of his love in verse 16. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. That's what the gospel writer John tells us. Okay? Look at the purpose of his love. That, so that, in order that. Why did Christ die on the cross? In order that whosoever believes in him, Christ, the Son of God, should not perish, that's the negative purpose, but have everlasting life, that's the positive purpose. Christ came that we would not perish, that we would avoid perishing, and that we would gain everlasting life. Notice how Jesus is described in verse 16. God gave his only begotten son. If he's the only begotten son, how many sons does God have that he has begotten? He has one. That means Jesus is unique. It's very important that you get that in this explanation. Then John goes on and he keeps speaking about this. Here's a further clarification. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world amongst his people to condemn the world. Notice that's the negative reason God did not send his son. He didn't send the, his son to condemn or judge the world. But, here's the positive reason. That through him, the world through him might be saved. This is God's rescue plan for the world. His rescue plan for the world is Jesus dying on the cross. The means of salvation or deliverance is believing upon Him, which we saw last week meant giving our wholehearted commitment to Him. So, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn us. He sent Jesus into the world to rescue us. That means God's for us. He's not against us. How many times do, we, do people think that God's against them instead of God being for them? God is for us. God loves us. How much does He love us? So much that he gave his only begotten son. He has done everything he can to rescue us. Now look at our responsibility. Verse 18. 
he, that means he or she, that means the one, literally, the one who believes in him, that's the Son of Jesus, the Son of God, is not condemned. That's the individual who believes, commits their life to Christ, is not condemned. But he who does not believe, meaning in the Son, is condemned already. Right now you're condemned if you don't believe in Christ. It's like the sword hanging over your head, just waiting to fall. You're already under a sentence. It's a self-imposed sentence. What's God want for you? That you'll be what? Yeah, delivered and saved and have eternal life. But if you don't believe, guess what? You put yourself under judgment. You're judging yourself. It's not like God's judging you. You're judging yourself. So, you're not... You, you're condemned already in verse 18. See? Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's the uniqueness of Jesus. He's the only begotten. If you reject Jesus, God doesn't have any more sons to give. How many does he have? And how many did he give? One. He gave, every, he gave the only one he had. There's nothing left. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you and me. See, so to reject him means that there's no salvation for you. Because there's nothing left to give. See? Now look at the basis of the judgment. Verse 19. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world. Remember we saw in chapter 1, Jesus is the light. And he's the light that shines all men. The light has come into the world. And watch this, verse 19. And people, humanity, man, men loved darkness rather than light. Men loved darkness rather than light. When did Nicodemus come to Jesus? During the light or during the darkness? darkness. Yeah, he slithered it over there. Slithered. <coughs> Not slithered. Slithered. Over there. In the darkness. Under the gaze of night. See, men like darkness rather than light. What did Nicodemus like? Darkness. Don't put Nicodemus in a positive frame. He is sneaking around trying to trap Jesus. We know that. So, men like darkness rather than light. Verse 9. Why do they like darkness rather than light? Look at the end of verse 19. Because their deeds are evil. That's why. Most people commit their deeds in the dark, evil deeds in the dark. They try not to be seen. Why do you think they put a mask over their face when they rob somebody many times? Or a stocking. They don't want to be, they don't want to be recognized. So people don't come to the light because their deeds are evil. I always used to think, people don't, why don't people come to Christ? You know, And I always think of all kinds of reasons why people don't come to Christ and receive salvation. And the reason is, they don't want to come to Christ because they don't want to stop doing what they're doing. They're doing evil things. To come to Christ means you're going to change your life. Your, your sin is going to be exposed. You're going to have to repent and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm making an about face. People don't want to do that. So if you come to the light, that's what's going to happen. And they don't like that. So they want to continue to live in their sin. So they don't come to the light. Verse 20 says, For everyone practicing evil evil 
hates the light and does not come to the light. Look at that. Everyone, how many? Everyone practicing evil. That means does bad things. Hates the light. So if you talk to a person who's an adulterer or whatever they're doing, I just use that particular thing. It could be anything. You want to talk to them about Jesus, they don't want to talk to you about that. Because that exposes their sin. See? They hate the light and does not come to the light lest their deeds be exposed. But, here's the contrast. He who does the truth, the person who's really trying to live a moral life, even though they're lost, but they're trying to do what is right. He that does the truth, practices truth, comes to the light. Why? Look at this. That his deeds may be clearly seen. That he, that they, have been done in God. And so we have these two categories of people. Those who come to the light and those who avoid the light. Okay. One who believes on Christ, one who doesn't believe on Christ. One who condemns himself, one who receives eternal life by an act of God's grace. Now, that's talking about the light. When you look over at John chapter 1, where this light is introduced, and remember we said John 1 was the prologue of the gospel. It will introduce to us subjects that will later be discussed in more depth. So we see in chapter 1, the light is discussed, introduced. In chapter 3, it's discussed in greater detail. It'll be discussed again in chapter 8. But look at the introduction. John chapter 1 and verse 4 talks about Jesus. It says this, In Him was life. Life. That's why if you believe on Him, you get life. Okay. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness. And the darkness did not comprehend it. Which means that uh, it doesn't light Darkness does not overtake the light. Okay. doesn't even want to be exposed to the light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's John the Baptist. This man came for a witness. To bear witness to what? The light. He's going to point to Jesus. Say, follow him. Here's the purpose. That all through him, through Jesus the light, might be saved. might believe. Verse 8. He that, he was not the light, John the Baptist wasn't the light, but he was sent to bear witness to the light. That was the true light, which gives light to how many people? Every person that comes into the world. So, here is the truth of the gospel that's being to be shared in all the world, and people are confronted with it, and they'll either hate the light, or they will embrace the light. They'll either reject Jesus or they will receive Jesus. So this is John's explanation of why Jesus died on the cross and how you can have eternal life or be condemned. Now, back in chapter 3 and verse 22, he now continues the story. See, verses 16 through uh, 21 were explanations about the cross. Now, in verse 22, John, the gospel writer, is going to continue telling the story. And here's what he says. This is, begins, again, a narrative section. It says, after these things, after what things? After Jesus was in Jerusalem, 
at the Passover, after Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, right? All those kinds of things. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. That would be the countryside outside the city of Jerusalem. And there he remained, Jesus remained with them, and look at this, baptized. Jesus and his disciples begin baptizing people at this point. Now look what else it says in verse 23. Now John, that's John the Baptist, was also baptizing in Anon and near Selim, which is in Samaria. Here's the reason he was in that area. Because there was much water there. This tells us that water, baptism by water, you need a lot of water. This is why sprinkling is not considered baptism in the Bible. There has to be much water. So it's talking about immersing somebody in water. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, this is a clue that they baptized by immersion. You know, even John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church, and Methodist Church sprinkles people, but John Wesley, the founder, said, look, we sprinkle people, but we know in Bible times the way they baptized them was through immersion. Sometimes we don't have all that kind of water, so we sprinkle them, but in Bible times they immerse them. Okay? So that's verse 23. So John was baptizing up in that area, it says because there was much water, and they came, meaning the people of that region came, and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Uh, John will eventually be thrown into prison, and he'll never get out again. He'll lose, literally lose his head. And that's when Jesus' ministry really takes off. But up until this time, John has been baptizing in Samaria, and according to verse 22, Jesus and his disciples have been baptizing in Judea. Okay. So, now we get this report. Look at verse 25. We get a report. A report arrives. Okay. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. Now this is very interesting. Uh, as John's baptizing, some of the Jews, probably Pharisees, they begin to uh, question John. And the issue is, what is it in verse 25? Purification. You see that? They're saying, well, why do we have to be baptized, John, in this river, when we already practice purification rites? You know, we go, we wash our hands, we wash our feet, we do all these things, symbolic things of purification. Why do we have to be baptized? Why do you think that is? Because John said, when he preached baptism, he said, repent for what's at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Purification was under the Old Testament system, but something new is going to happen. The kingdom is soon going to arrive, and to be prepared for its arrival, I'm asking you to be baptized. Publicly. Saying you are ready for the arrival of the kingdom. Okay. So the issue here is, why should we be purified when baptized when we've already practiced purification. Now remember back in chapter 2, when Jesus turned water into wine? Remember what he used? Six big jars. What kind of jars were they? Purification jars. Remember that? And Jesus said, you know, we don't need those jars for purification anymore. Let's use them for wine. Remember that? And he decommissioned them as you would decommission a boat or a ship. I should say a ship. Excuse me there. I said boat. That was 
very ignorant on the ship. So the law and all of its purification rites are going out. And something new is going to happen. The kingdom is coming. It's going to come in the person of Christ and the giving of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So John is, has this ministry of preparation for the kingdom. Now this report arrives. I said that a little early. The report arrives now in verse 26. It's a news report. And they came to John. And this is some people from out of town. And they said to him, Rabbi, which is teacher, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. So a report says, you know that guy that you pointed to and said Lamb of God, Light, and all those other L's? Light, light, lamb, remember all that? <clears throat> that guy is in Judea and he's baptized and people are just flocking to him. Now isn't it interesting, they don't mention his name, do they? They don't say Jesus. They don't even know his name, a lot of these people. They, all they know is this is the guy that John pointed to. And, you know, we have to be walking down the road, you know that guy that you pointed to? He's baptizing people and just flocking to him. So this is, means John has competition, see? Now, he's, so they're basically saying, John, you should have never promoted this guy. You know, he's taking over. You shot yourself in the foot when you said, follow this guy. So we get John's response in verse 27. John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's saying, well, that must be God's doing then. Uh, you don't succeed without God's doing that. Uh, it's a very important thing because let's suppose that John said at some point, this is hypothetical, I want to be the Messiah. How about if he said that? Would that make him the Messiah? No, what does it say there in verse 27? A man can receive nothing unless what? It's been given to him by God. You see, John cannot be the Messiah because that's not what God made John. John. God made Jesus the Messiah. So John and Jesus have two different roles. One, John is the forerunner. Second, Jesus is the Messiah. And because both of those offices and ministries were given by God, there's no room for competition. There's no room for jealousy. And uh, I'm convinced we need to be comfortable in our own skin and not try to be somebody else. And uh, not aspire to be more than the role that God's assigned to us. I told you about being in seminary. When I was in seminary, I was like most guys, I wanted to be Billy Graham. But guess what? I wasn't chosen to be Billy Graham. I was chosen to be a Sunday school teacher. Now, I said, well, I should be pastor of First Baptist Church. That would be crazy because what? You can't do that unless God gives you that. Isn't that what it says in verse 27? So there's no room for jealousy. We complement each other. We all have our own ministries, our own positions in life, our own stations in life, and God gives us each a ministry. To illustrate that, John we pick up in verse 28, and he uses an illustration regarding a wedding. Look what he says. You yourselves 
bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. That's not my role. But I have been sent before him. I am the forerunner. So here's the illustration. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. That's his role. And the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Like when he says, I do. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So here's his illustration. John says, there's only one bride in a wedding, unless you're in Utah. There's only one bride. There's only one groom. And guess what? There's only one best man. Everybody has a different role. Okay? Now, in our understanding, the bride would be God's people, in this case the church. The groom would be Jesus, the Messiah, and the best man would be John the Baptist. Now, once the marriage is consummated, the best man's job is over. And he's glad it's over. He's rejoiced in the job that he's had, you know. And in Bible times, he, he brought the bride, or he brought the groom to the wedding. He was the forerunner. He said, come on, you know. He introduces him, and so on and so forth. But once his job is over, it's fulfilled, and he can rejoice that he did well. John realizes that that's his station in life. That's what God has given him. God has made Jesus the bridegroom. So here's the conclusion of all this. Look at verse 30. Here's John's conclusion. He says, He, that's Jesus, must increase. And I must decrease. Now that's the third time the word must has been used. Remember the first must? You must be what? Born again. Remember the second must? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so what? Must the Son of Man be lifted up? Here's the third must in verse 30. He must increase. So those are three musts. I would say those are three essential points to this chapter, these three must. We must be born again, Jesus must die on the cross, and Jesus must increase. Okay? Now we come to the conclusion. Look at uh, verse 31. Okay? What we're going to have now is the Gospel writer is now going to interject and explain all of this. Watch this. Number one. He who comes from above that would be Jesus, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Remember that? He who comes from above is above what? All. You see that? He's above all. He who is of the earth is what? Earthly and speaks of the earth. Now Nicodemus, what would he be? He'd be earthly and speak of the earth. He can't speak heavenly things because he did not was not in heaven. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 31, it sounds like a repeat to me, he who comes from heaven is above all. Okay? So what you see is uh, there is 
one who comes from above and the others are from below. Jesus is from above and therefore he is above all. He's above John the Baptist. He's above Nicodemus. He's above everybody else. Okay, number two, look at verse 32. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. Talking about the Pharisees that he's come to. Remember, he came unto his own, and his own did what? Received him not. They don't receive his testimony. Especially those from earth. But those that God has touched, they will receive his testimony. Okay, now look at verse 33. We see the third conclusion. He who has received this testimony has certified that God is true. The apostles and the others that God has chosen to have the light and life, they testify that to, the, to the truthfulness of the gospel. How do they testify? They believe and they have eternal life. And they can testify with a certitude that this is true. Now look at verse 34. This is the fourth conclusion. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God. So, God sent Jesus. What does he speak? The word of God. For God, now look at this, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. And we know back on, in John chapter 1, John the Baptist points to Jesus and said, He's the one upon whom the Spirit of God comes and abides. And remember when Jesus was baptized and he came out of the water, what happened? Holy Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove and a voice came from heaven and said this right here is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased hear you him that's the one who speaks my word Jesus is God's representative we know that because the spirit is on him and abides on him fifth conclusion verse 35 he who believes in the son verse 35 he uh, the Father loves the Son. Verse 35, fifth conclusion. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father has given the power of attorney over everything into the hands of Jesus. He does that after Jesus dies and He's raised from the dead. Remember, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now read verse 35 again. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. At His resurrection, Jesus says, All authority, all the power of eternity over all things has been given to Me. Go and make disciples of all nations. And when John writes this, the Gospel writer writes this in 95 AD, Jesus has, sits at the right hand of God and everything is under Christ. And then we have a summary statement. And here's the summary statement. He who believes in the Son. This is John, the Gospel writer's message to his audience in 95, and it's his message to us today. He who believes in the Son, that would be the only begotten Son, has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him right now right now notice verse 35 36 he who believes in the son look at the verb what has right now 
You have ever, if you want to have everlasting life, you can have it right now. Believe on Christ. You don't have to die to get everlasting life. You don't have to wait till He comes back to get everlasting life. The moment you believe, you have everlasting life right now. But, just stay the way you are. If you don't believe on the Son, you shall not see life, but guess what? The wrath of God, what? Right now, abides on you. And that's the summary statement. Therefore, it's important for us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just going to read the first three verses of the next chapter for you. This is where we're going to go next week. It's the woman at the well. Okay? But here's the introduction. Therefore, in light of that story, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees had heard, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard, that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. When Jesus gets that report. And now you have a little parenthesis. Look at this, verse 30, verse 2. Though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. Uh, when Jesus was out there and the report comes back, he's baptizing more than you, John. Well, actually, it was Jesus' guys. Jesus' apostles who were actually doing the dunking and bringing them out. Jesus was supervising. And so John... The Gospel writer John gives us parentheses there. So I'm going to skip the parentheses for a second. I'm going to read 1 and 3 without the parentheses and you get the gist of the story. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, meaning John the Baptist, he left Judea and he departed again for Samaria. But he needed to go through, for Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria first. And when he gets to Samaria, he meets this woman at the well. And that's what we'll pick up next, next week, chapter 4. Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for a Sunday school class where we can read the text. Unvarnished, and not in flowery language, but we can just follow the the meaning of the story and the meaning of the explanation and the clarifications and see exactly what's happening here and then examine our own life in light of the scriptures. Lord, help those of us in this class to fully believe on Christ with heartfelt commitment. May we indeed be able to call ourselves not just believers but disciples. And then those, Lord, who They've never committed to you in a wholehearted way. And they realize the seriousness of that decision. And that there's a judgment hanging over. Oh, Lord, help us to make the right decision, commit our lives to Christ. May we indeed uh, testify that your word is true because we've experienced the eternal life that comes through the Son. In Christ's name.